This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In Psalms 40, you learn by the key of David, I waited patiently on the Lord. He put also a new song in my heart. Many shall see it and fear. So when we start getting into the subject of the seven seals and the world wants to twist up and turn around, and then we'll be honest, looks like somebody's going to get a butt whooping in the near future, aren't they? Fear of God in the days of you, before the evil days draw nigh, when you'll have no pleasure in them. Before the sun, moon, stars is darkened. When God, the Creator, will rise up at the voice of the bird, voice of the bird. He took advantage of people's craving for affection and acceptance. He was a very charismatic and charming speaker who was very effective at persuading listeners to follow him. And in the days that followed, numerous government officials entered the group in an effort to protect the kids and adults from his deception. A theater of tragedy broadcast across the nation one of avoidable deaths, one government's fight for justice versus one cult's fight for faith. Welcome to Bizarre Conspiracies. My name is Eric Patino, and with me, as always, is... Conrad Toll. Now, this is a part two of the last episode you heard, which was the Ruby Ridge. And this is going to fall in the timeline of events that happened. We're going to be talking about the Waco siege. And in order to talk about that, we are going to have to talk about the leader, David Koresh... David Korish was born Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas, to a 14-year-old single mother, Bonnie Sue Clark. Well, now, I he, didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. His mom was very young when and, uh, she was pregnant. Does he know who his father is? Uh, he knows of his father, but the father was never in the picture. Now, before Koresh yeah. was born, his father moved on from dating Bonnie Sue, so just before she found out she was pregnant, he moved on from her, began dating another girl, leaving Bonnie Sue to live with a, a violent alcoholic. And I think that was her parents. When Koresh's mother abandoned him when he was four years old, she left him in the care of his maternal grandmother, 
Arlene Clark in 1963. When he was just seven years old, his mother came back, but this time she was married to a guy named Roy Howlman, a carpenter. And in 1966, Bonnie Sue and Howlman welcomed their son Roger into the world, so he had a, a half-brother. Koresh had an unlawful connection with a 15-year-old when he was just 19 years old and got the girl pregnant as a result. And this kind of, I don't know what you would call it, this kind of personality that he has and, and the kind of uh, lifestyle he wants to live is going to come up again and again and again, especially when he starts living in the Mount Carmel Center, the yeah. compound. Now, he claimed to have converted to Christianity in the Southern Baptist Church before quickly transferring to his mother's church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There, Koresh developed feelings for the pastor's daughter. As he prayed for direction, it is claimed that Koresh opened his eyes to find the Bible open to Isaiah 34:16, which states that none should lack for her spouse. Koresh approached the pastor and informed him that God wanted him to take his daughter as a bride because he believed this to be a sign from God. Obviously already uh, thinking more of himself here, right? Thinking yeah. he has more of an ability, and that's a common trait amongst cult leaders. But you can be the judge whether or not he's a cult leader or not. Now, what what Bible verse was that? Isaiah thirty four sixteen. So after he approached the pastor and told him that he wanted to marry his daughter, the pastor kicked him out and then dismissed him from the community for persistently pursuing his daughter. Rightfully so. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. So uh, what I'm does that verse say? was not interested in him. It, there was no other um, mentioning of the daughter, so I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to assume no. And I'm guessing that the daughter was probably fairly young. I'm going to assume that as well, yes. At least, <laughs> at least 15, 16. So then, Koresh relocated to Waco, Texas in 1981 and joined the Branch Divinians there at the Mount Carmel Center, the sex administrative center outside of Waco. Koresh sang and played the guitar during church sessions. Now, he quickly advanced from leader to self-proclaimed prophet after claiming to have heard a second voice of God instructing him to lead the church. Now, this is where things start to get a little weird. A sexual relationship between Koresh and Lois Rodden, the group's head at the time, started in 1983. Now, Benjamin Rodden, the... Founder and first leader was married to Lois Rodden, but he had passed away in 1978, leaving his wife in charge. And their son, George Rodden, was going to take over the group as the new leader. Now, over time, Koresh started to assert that he had been chosen by God to have a child with Lois, who is to be the chosen one. So their kid was going to be the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> Lois gave Koresh permission to start preaching his own doctrine. He named it the Serpent's Root, and that oh. divided the community. Yeah, I imagine. I imagine, because isn't a snake like a sign of evil in Christianity? Oh, yeah. No matter what branch of Christianity 
Serpents are always like kind a symbol of, of the devil. Yeah. And then something happened when Koresh revealed that God had told him he wanted to marry another female by the name of Rachel Jones. This is kind of the startup to where he started to take on multiple wives. Uh, he had several wives, I think about 20 of them. But at this point, it was, I think, his second or third. There were rumors that he was already secretly married to a 17-year-old follower by this point as well. I just wanted to go ahead and mention that now. And after he had this second revelation from God to marry Rachel Jones, it sort of calmed the Mount Carmel Center. Like Everyone just started to chill out a little bit. So Rod, was he already married to the leader at that it, point? I don't think he ever married her. He just was going to have a kid with her. Oh. To bring the <laughs> future messiah, I suppose. And yeah. did he? I'm unsure, honestly. I didn't okay. find any more stories about her and him and their kid. So, I don't know. That w I think it would be even more shocking if they didn't. Because considering like all the stuff that's going on, if he's going around spouting prophecy and his first prophecy is. Yeah, I didn't even tell you the good part, though, Conrad. <laughs> OK, Lois okay. at the time when he had this vision of God saying he was going to have a child with her and it was going to be the chosen one. She was 60 years old at the time. OK, yeah. So no child from her. So George Rotten, right, the actual child of Lois, he didn't trust David at all. Wonder why not? And he believed a man named Wayne Dale Adair was sent by David to kill George so that he could take over the church. But what ended up happening instead was Rodden, George Rodden, ended up killing Wayne Dale Adair in 1989 by striking him in the head with an axe. And that's not even the weirdest part. Apparently, Did he go to jail for that? Oh, hold on, hold on. Okay. <laughs> Before he killed Adair, apparently Adair believed he was the real messiah. So <laughs> there was about two or three people with a god complex trying to take over this uh, Davidian branch. Really, really bizarre. Anyways, yeah, according to George Rodden, Korsh sent the man to kill him. He was declared ill and institutionalized in a mental facility in Big Springs, Texas after that. So he didn't go to jail, but he did go to a, a mental house. Now, George Rotten owned Mount Carmel Center, and but he also owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes. So David and his followers were able to raise the money to pay for it and to claim the property in David's name while George Rotten was incarcerated. So was it under the um, assumption that if Rotten ever got better, that he would be able to reclaim it? Were they holding it in trust or did they take over possession at that point? No, they took over possession. This is where rumors started to leave the compound. Koresh was accused of participating in numerous instances of child abuse, both physically and sexually. Now, he had another doctrine called the House of David. And in the House of David, it influenced the Branch Davidians to marry any married or unmarried woman, regardless of age. And there were reports of children as young as um, 13 being groomed to be his wife. 
for when they reach of age, but before then, the parents would consent for David to have sex with their underage kid before they were married. Crazy. Now, let me get this right. They're a, at least at this point, they were a branch of Christianity, the Seventh-day Adventists? Adventists. Okay. And it is, in their doctrine, not allowed for two people who aren't married to have sexual relations, correct? He made his own doctrines when he took over. Uh, right. And so they're they're going along with what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. So what they the, so it's not like this is something that is common and ordinary among no. their this it, is it, this is not even common among branch Davidians in other communities. This is only David's version of branch Davidians. So this isn't like Mormonism where polygamy is commonplace. Right. Or at least not unheard of. Mm-hmm. So this is all out of the ordinary. A few people did start to question whether or not if what they were hearing from David to be actual laws from God, because David kept claiming that, you know, these were all things that God told him to do. And these were his revelations, right? His doctrines, his revelations. He was claiming to speak to God and God speaking to him. So they were starting to question, but by then it was too late. They were knee deep in the community. They couldn't leave. I don't understand how it is somebody can go along with that. This ideology was based on an alleged revelation that called for 24 children to be born by selected women in the neighborhood, in his community. These 24 children were to serve as the 24 ruling elders over the millennia following the return of Christ, according to David. Again, not common Davidian belief, not even a common Seventh-day Adventist belief. This is all David. Well, except the second coming of Christ. Well, yeah, except for that, but I mean... He had a different timeline for that as well. I just get over the fact how somebody can do what he's doing. Yeah. You know, how how do you work up the guts? You to go to somebody and say straight in the face what he's saying. I, I just... Well, by this point, Conrad, well, you have to think that he's been the guy that's been preaching, who's been leading the sermons, who's been leading yeah. the worship because he played guitar and he sang for the congregation there. He was giving everybody advice. Everybody already knew him and welcomed him into the community long ago. So he was already well established and he did have, I don't know, maybe about 50 loyal uh, female followers that did not question him one bit about anything he said. Okay. But so one of the selected women that we're going to have is 24 children, right? One of those girls, at least one, was an underage girl named Michelle Jones, who was actually the younger sister of Koresh's legal wife. Even his wife didn't question him when he said, I'm going to take your younger sister and she's going to have one of my children. Well, I mean, if you're accepting polygamy, it makes sense. Because if, if you've already taken the polygamy step, I believe in the Bible, isn't there like one of the, the three... Patriarch fellas, it's it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't Jacob have marry uh, uh, two sisters? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure he did. So if you've already accepted polygamy, 
it wouldn't be too much to accept that as well. Mm. Well, at this point, the Texas yeah. Child Protection Services conducted a six-month-long investigation into the allegations of sexual abuse in 1992, but they were unable to find any evidence. This may be because this? the Branch yeah. Davidians hid Korish and Michelle's marriage and said it was a spiritual marriage, not a physical one. And instead... <laughs> On top of that, they gave Michelle a surrogate husband to maintain appearances. Since the evidence wasn't conclusive at all, to bring forth charges of sexual or physical abuse, this prompted the siege in a way, because this is when the FBI and the ATF got word that he was stockpiling weapons. You see, David Koresh wanted to train his male followers as his personal army. This is why he had a stockpile of weapons. He wanted to have an army because he had a prophecy. And this prophecy of his was going to end in a bloody battle for faith. He knew that he needed an army. But he also knew that he was going to die fighting this army. And when you kind of step back and you look at it all. Whether you believe him or not. Kind of happened. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't that, uh, I think that that is what they refer to as a self-fulfilling prophecy. This prophecy came to him when he was fairly young, like in his 20s. It was quite a few years before he even joined the Branch Davidians. Yeah. But here's the thing. If he wasn't trying to raise an army, then he never would have stockpiled guns. And if he never stockpiled guns, the ATF never would have heard about it. And if the ATF never heard about it, they wouldn't have done questionable legal things. That is very true, but... <laughs> so they heard about it from the CPS? Here's what happened. There was an ATF agent and an FBI agent pretending to be mailmen who were snooping on the, the compound. They were trying to see what was going on there because, yeah, they did heard rumors of weapons being stocked there. Multiple weapons. The FBI was there because of the children. So they were both there scoping out the area. There was a Branch Davidian that actually figured out who they were because they were just... It, it was obvious their, their mail truck was just sitting there. It wasn't moving. It didn't move on to the next house. It was just sitting there. And when the Branch Davidian saw that, he went into the compound and informed David of this. And David knew because of his prophecy that they were about to be uh, breached upon. And he <laughs> knew that this was the time. Like he seriously knew this was the time. So what did they do? They got their weapons. And this is when the 51 day standoff officially started when the two undercover agents were made out. So a 51 day standoff between the federal officials and the Branch Davidians came about. Legal authorities were alerted by accusation of child abuse and the beginning of a retail firearms business. The U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms acquired both an arrest warrant for Korish and a search warrant for the property because they thought the group was illegitimately accumulating weapons. On February 28, 1993, the complex was stormed by about 70 agents. 
Four federal agents were murdered, and more than a dozen were injured during the two-hour gunfight. Though it is unclear who opened fire first, six Davidians reportedly perished in addition. So, a little bit on the confusion. Uh The first shot fired by the many Davidians who survived claimed that it was the ATF who fired first. The ATF said that Branch Davidians opened fire at multiple different stages. So some of the agents said they fired before we even got out of the truck, which was a, a two trucks hauling cattle trailers, and they were hiding in the cattle trailers. Um, mm. There was another fellow who said that they were shot at as they approached the door. And then there was another fellow who later recounted this, who said that the first shots came uh, from the dog team. Now, the dog team, it was a group that was there to shoot any loose dogs. That was their that was their whole purpose. The dog team was to shoot straight uh, dogs that weren't on leashes. Jeez. Yeah, I did hear and about that the, one. The first shots were from the dog team shooting dogs. He was incorrect in that statement that he made, and he wanted to retract that statement. And gotcha. That, but he was actually with the dog team at the time, and that, that was actually impossible now that he thinks about it. How do you Which forget what of, team you're on, though? I don't know. Well, regardless of that, and we'll talk about the trial afterwards. After that, some 900 law enforcement officers, including FBI hostage negotiators, arrived at the facility once shots were being fired. Uh, Even though Koresh claimed that neither he nor his followers were suicidal, he used Bible nonsense and made violent threats during phone calls with the negotiators. Now, I have to say, I saw a ton of footage of the negotiators and all the audio archives of the negotiators talking to David Korish. He didn't threaten anybody. He was calm and cool. as It did not phase him that people were trying to break into his facility and get him out. Korish enabled more than 30 followers to depart in exchange for various supplies, including milk that was brought in boxes equipped with listening devices. It was estimated that only 100 people were still within the property at this point. Now, agents tried a variety of tactics as talks stalled, including turning off the compound's electricity, playing Taliban chants over loudspeakers, and shining spotlights on the complex to disturb their sleep. Yeah, trying to make them sleep. Yeah. At one point, Koresh threatened to surrender if one of his sermons was broadcast on national radio, but failed to do so when they did play the tape for him on the air. And they did. My name is Dave Koresh. I'm speaking to you from Mount Carmel Center. The first thing that I would like to introduce in our subject is the reasons Attorney General Janet Reno of the United States authorized the FBI to raid the facility after becoming convinced that Koresh would not give himself up. And on April 19th, 1993, at 6 in the morning, the FBI started shooting tear gas into the compound. The Branch Davidians soon started using their own weaponries. 400 tear gas containers were dropped inside the compound over the course of more than five hours by armed vehicles, which were tanks, some of which made holes in the wall. And that's an understatement. They kind of just drove into the side of the compound 
and fired these tear gas containers into the building. Now, Conrad pointed out to me a video. It's about 40 seconds about the tank allegedly showing flames, like a flamethrower, which might have caused the compound to go in flames. Clarify on that. The, uh, it's not that there was a flamethrower. It's that the tear gas was flammable and that it was ignited and that they were spraying burning tear gas. That's the allegation anyway. Yeah. The assault finished around 11.40 a.m. The Branch Davidians started multiple fires around 25 minutes later, and at 12.25 p.m., gunshots were heard inside the compound. Firefighters were not permitted to enter the area for another 15 minutes because of safety reasons, by which time the compound was completely destroyed. Only nine individuals were able to flee, but all the others sadly perished. 75 bodies were subsequently discovered by investigators. 25 of those sadly belonged to children. Korish was among the dead who had all been shot to death. Some of the wounds appeared to have been self-inflicted, but not all of them. Sharp criticisms was leveled at the government's response, and Reno, the attorney general, later acknowledged regret for approving the raid. While the government had long insisted that it had nothing to do with the fire, uh, the fire's origin or spread, it was discovered in 1999 that some of the tear gas used by the FBI was, in fact, flammable. Later that year, Reno appointed former Republican senator and attorney John Danfort to look into the raid. His investigation was completed in 2000, revealed that neither the U.S. government caused the fire nor fired any shots at the property. Uh, regardless, on the, on, yeah. on the day of the fire, right. they obviously fired multiple bullets before the day of the fire. Mm -hmm. Regardless of these conclusions... The Waco siege was seen by some as a government overreach that encouraged the emergence of factions. Bad planning, yeah. poor execution, and as one person pointed out in one of the documentaries I saw, there were bad decisions made on both sides, not just the ATF and FBI, Absolutely. but also on David Koresh's side, because he wouldn't give in to any of these demands, and even when they wanted his sermon to be played on air, and the FBI did that for him, he didn't keep his end of the bargain. That's what made them think, okay, he's not going to surrender at all. He's just going to keep messing with us. We have to end this now. But we're not going to end the topic there. If you want to listen to more, and there is one more event that followed the Waco siege, and we will talk about that. If you want to listen to that, I think that's going to be over on our Patreon, so I will leave a link down below if you want to join. So, with that being said, that will conclude today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to email me or Conrad, you can do so at bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. That's one word, bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. But that will be it for us today. Thank you for listening. And as always, we will catch you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.